Dr. Doak, I have a question for you. Ooh. Yes. When's the last time you broke a law? <laughs> and what did you do? Hmm. <laughs> Maybe you've never broken a law, but oh. I can't imagine that's true. Well, okay. You're edgy. <laughs> I'm a lawbreaker yep. when I need to. I break laws for my own reasons. All right. Okay. So obvious law that I break that pretty much everyone breaks is the speed limit. Right. Right. Um, I'm trying to think of an actual law I broke other than the the speed limit. Jaywalking. I, I'll tell you this. I don't know to what extent the various um, social distancing and face covering wearing oh, um, right. things are laws, but I've and I've tried to like I've tried scrupulously to keep them, but like there have been moments where it's like I know I wasn't doing it the right way. Oh, right. You know what I mean? So, like, I guess there was some law breaking there, probably. But I don't even know if that's a law. Well, that one's hard. I mean, I think you can get in trouble for violating an mm -hmm. executive order. But um, also, sometimes it's hard to keep up with them, too. I know. So, it's like, did you know? Maybe you've broken other laws and you just didn't know that you were doing it. Oh, totally. Totally. Right. Which raises questions about, like, how morally culpable you are about breaking laws you don't even yes. know about. And is ignorance an excuse of the law and the six feet and the three feet and the distance and the mask and the nose and the this and the N95 and the so, whatnot? Yeah. So I think one of the most interesting things about the time that we're living in now is that, and this is something that, that people have shared across time, is, like, what is the right relationship that a human has to the law? Yes. Our, our traditional, like civil codes now uh -huh. and then also like god's law doesn't that make it even more important oh if that, it's like it's one thing <laughs> if we the people passed it <laughs> that ratchets it up uh right to an infinite one could say divine level what about you law breaking well yeah the speed limit is definitely i think um i'm trying to uh, i i'm gonna guess that i've made a wrong turn at some point <laughs> you know one of the things about having we're so edgy we're like going to traffic I know. minor traffic violations. violations well the problem is that when you have children when you're raising children you just don't have time to do anything interesting right. like i haven't really you don't have time to go on a crime a long spree time since i've been on you a you gotta crime plan spree. that i can't just be yeah. running out of my house like doing gunplay in the yeah, streets like yeah. i don't have time for it's that it's like no i gotta i gotta like get the kids to bed and manage you know story time is there a law you'd love to break okay <laughs> um is there a law i'd like to break i uh, you ever no, just want to like just, just, I just smash something or just steal um no no you know why because i'm such a I'm, I'm an oldest so i'm such a rule follower like it does not it doesn't appeal to me but i feel like you have maybe an avant-garde side to yourself is there some sort of you know i'm an oldest child as well and yeah. I, I don't love breaking laws but I, I think i would for like a righteous reason Oh, for sure for sure you know yeah. like 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 civil rights like law breaking that seems uh, like sure sure um i'm not yeah i'm not a i'm not a good I'm not a good rule breaker in, in many ways, but I think if I did, I would do it with a super righteous attitude. You <laughs> right. Know what I mean? <laughs> Even if you weren't righteous, your attitude. The attitude. No, would I would be, be I would be totally for yeah. it. Yeah. Welcome, students. To Welcome, the, Theo 101. Welcome to the I Need to Know More podcast, where we follow up each week on the video lectures, mm -hmm. lecture, or in this case, lectures. Yes, we had a packed, a jam-packed week this week. You really, I mean, you Bible scholar really filled their minds and hearts. We really did it this week. With a lecture on the Exodus and a lecture on the law. Yeah. Did you have a favorite between those two? I know you've been teaching 
the Hebrew scriptures for a long time. Yep. yep. Exodus is one of my favorites. Law really? is one of my most difficult feared topics. Can you explain why both of those? The, the Exodus is just a beautiful foundational story. Like if you want to get to the New Testament, and if you want to talk about Jesus, I know so many of us do. Right. We have to understand the Exodus story. Like without the Exodus story, there is no Jesus. None of the imagery makes sense. Like literally none of it is there. Like and 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 the drama that Jesus goes under leading up to his crucifixion is is an Exodus drama. It's a Passover drama. You know, I really appreciate you bringing up that point because now we'll get to this in the next semester. But in the early church, there were certain leaders who wanted to cut out basically all of the Old Testament, right? Um, for a lot of different reasons that we'll get into in the next semester. But one of the strongest arguments for keeping the entirety of the Hebrew scriptures, even the parts that we don't understand, mm-hmm. is the fact that the early, the, the New Testament writers were so deeply indebted to that, right? Oh, yeah. Everything they understood about the person of Jesus, oh. they they can can be seen in the Exodus story oh, and totally. many stories. Um, oh, totally. Now, the Exodus is like, I think there's an argument too to be made. I think it... Like, let's say, uh, you know, if you were to play a thought game, which is or a thought experiment, which is like, let's say going into the New Testament, you could only read one complete book of the Old Testament and understand it really well. But no other book. You would choose the Exodus. I think you might choose the book of wow. Exodus. Wow. I That's think you might. I think you might choose it. I not think, Genesis. Not even Genesis. Because um, Genesis is, is iconic, is, is wonderful for all the reasons that we know and love. But... It doesn't really give you the full, it doesn't give you the story that is actually the most dramatic version of the story. It doesn't give you, and I know students, we brought this term up several times, like as though we think it's really important because we do. It doesn't (laughs) give you the typology that you really need to really understand. Typology meaning a kind of set, like a story plot, you might say, Mm -hmm. that can play itself out over and over again with different people filling the roles. So the typology of like the evil empire, the pharaoh, that's the template then for Babylon later in our story to come in or the Assyrians and then later the Greeks and then later the Romans and the Romans are the big like villain. And so for release from empire, Exodus is the the typology, the story. You know, I think one of the things that um, many of the students, at least this was what I was raised in, Mm -hmm. uh, they might not be immediately um, excited about the notion of typology. Mm -hmm. But I think one of the helpful things to think about is typology as a kind of language Mm -hmm. that helps you understand the world. Like we only understand the world because we use, or we only stand uh, sort of understand each other because we're using language, which is basically like a series of symbols to, you know, help us understand the world. And if you want to understand anything about the Christian life, you have to understand some of these like series of symbols. Right. Um, So, it's really great and important um, to think about, you know, the exact location yes. of, well, we talked about Noah's Ark, mm-hmm. um, but equally important, maybe even more so, is understanding these kind of archetypes that people had in their minds. Oh, it's way more important. I mean... I would think so. No, that's a great point about story. Like, you can't... I think this is a weird thing today that happens in Christianity, too, where it's like, we just kind of come to it and just like, like in so many areas of our lives, I'm guilty as well. We just kind of like, we don't want to really do the work to really understand something. We just kind of like want the product, mm-hmm. which to me, I think is a really toxic way of viewing faith. Mm. Like, and I, but I think it's a common one, unfortunately. And it's been too common in my own life. I'm not letting myself off the hook of this, but it's like, hey, just give me the product. Like, just give me like the transaction. Like, what's the final thing? What's the upshot? Like, yeah, 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 yeah. Or what's that <laughs> abbreviation people use? TLDR, TL, semicolon, didn't read or don't read. Too long, didn't read. 
um, Sad. which is the TLDR too long didn't read what is the actual just you know like I'll do this on social media like you see a long thing you're like yeah 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 yeah. what was yeah. the funny do I need to be angry or right. happy or think oh am I supposed to be outraged who am I yeah, outraged yeah, yeah. at just tell, tell me, me who my to get, emotional response right now. tell me who to get outraged at and it's like that does not work for faith my dear young ones it does not that is a bad approach bad 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 like you do not want to approach faith that way at all and so to understand and to live in live in in your daily life this exodus story is like the only way you can connect with jesus because it was the way that jesus connected with the world well i really enjoy the exodus story in part because i really like it's it's a big adventure story it's sort of like also a disaster movie oh, in my oh, mind i'm always thinking oh, yeah. about it like oh, yeah. as a movie um the and plagues, we get the this, reds the sky yeah, the frogs. we get this iconic conflicted hero right oh. like moses is a character that i in some ways especially at the beginning of the story you're not even sure if you're supposed to like him i know right? is he doing the right thing he murders an egyptian he does and then he seems to advocate for his people but does he really and does he accept like when god you know gives him this extraordinary assignment sort of right you know <laughs> yeah he's like well maybe no not really yeah it's weird to think interesting of guy. it's weird to think of responding that way to a god like that appears in a bush just like well maybe i i mean it tells you something though about the way people in this biblical period relate to god like we imagine people like god appears to you you're like walking in a field at night and you're like god yeah. why and all of a sudden the <laughs> deity just appears to you yes. in the sky and you're like and you fall on your face and you're like whatever you say i will do people in the bible like jacob for example does this i think in like genesis 28 there's a scene like this or um in in the moses story also other places people god comes to people and he's like i am the lord and they're like eh, but maybe <laughs> i'm not like, sure i'm gonna speak well they're enough. like maybe i will i don't know i actually really appreciate that on a personal level because i think about you know um i have not had a a literal burning bush mm -hmm. experience but i also like to imagine my life as like having a series of responsibilities and maybe even callings mm -hmm. and sometimes I just don't want to do it so I kind of appreciate yeah. this like right. that they include all of these stories if you think about it um they're including a lot of potentially not so flattering portraits oh totally um, totally I mean this is one of the great this is one of the great like literary and psychological and spiritual moves that the bible makes over and over again is there are very few just pure in a way heroes with no problems if you had to name one right off the top of your head besides jesus do you have one well david mary uh oh in terms Deborah. of oh in terms of the pure heroes yeah yeah who is yeah. the pure yeah, yeah david is mary in the new Testament. oh yeah i was thinking david is an example of the conflicted oh person. Yeah, yeah 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 mary in the, in the new testament has has no flaws that we can see Deborah in the book of Judges is is a, is not a major character. I mean, she appears for like a half of a chapter, basically. Um, but I'm trying to think of like somebody who's just like, just definitely. I good. know, I know. When we get to the judges, like, just that's like conflict city, <laughs> right? conflict.com, intrigue.com, right there. Um, <laughs> Methuselah, but that's because we don't know much in the about book of Genesis, that character. Yeah, yeah. Just pick characters that we don't know anything yeah. about. Even Noah. Noah's he's so righteous oh, he can say, no, but then no. he's like Gets flopping drunk, around naked. naked and drunk. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Although the text oddly doesn't actually say that he did anything wrong in doing that. It's just, the sons that are in trouble, right? Right. So, but, but. A biblical narrative is often like this. They don't often pass the kind of judgments, but they do leave to you like hints and clues and you're supposed to read. And so we don't even know if like God is really mad at Moses for killing the Egyptian, except that God then tries to kill him potentially in Exodus That's chapter right. four, verse 24. And then we get a very strange um, story about circumcision. 
right? And then yeah. there's a which made it sound then like the killing in Exodus four twenty four that God had thought about doing was maybe about circumcision and not even about the thing about the Egyptians. So that's uh, super interesting. Yeah. So so the lecture covered this stuff. Uh, the law, though, why is it so hard? To me, the law one is so difficult because I'm just it's such a tough topic and it explodes out into this big concept that I fear people who I I think it's. I think it's tough to just like get it all straight in one's head for me even. So I, I, I think, oh, our students, many of whom I know you out there, I've heard from you, like you're coming at this for the first time. I've, I've corresponded with students, many yes. students already in the class were mm -hmm. like, yeah, so I don't know anything about faith and this is my first experience. Is that okay? And we're like, yeah, it's totally okay. It's more than okay. It's desirable. It's good. We're all here for this. Yes. But I think sometimes in the kind of churches that I grew up in, I don't know, Dr. Payne, about the churches you grew up in, but the word law kind of took on a certain like valence and maybe it was very like it was kind of like a cheaply done tldr kind of version which is like the law was terrible and crushed people's faces in but jesus came to save us from it yay thanks bye and i think that that's a bad retelling of the story yeah i think so, actually this is a i i appreciate you for bringing this up because i actually think that um many students and many American Protestants, especially, were raised with a sort of, it, no, not sort of, an unbiblical perspective mm. on the law. Explain. Well, if we look at how the law is portrayed in books like the Psalms, the law is portrayed as this beautiful, tasty mm. thing, right? Like it, it's like honey in your mm. mouth. It's like this beautiful mm. right. um, set of instructions and the presence of God, like God's voice, you know, among us this beautiful thing that we ought to think about and appreciate. Right. And um, many of us were raised in churches. And, and, you know, if we look at like what Jesus himself says about this, we'll get this, get to this later. He comes to fulfill it, right? Not right. to abolish it. Um, and then we were raised with this idea that the law is this heavy and oppressive and dangerous thing. Right. Part of that has to do with some of the passages that we'll cover later in, in mm -hmm. the semester from like the Apostle Paul and stuff. But um, I think that that is hard. It's hard to appreciate mm -hmm. what the Israelites are experiencing yes. when they get this from God. So like, what are they getting when they get the law? Are they getting this thing that's going to enslave them? Right. Whoa, whoa, whoa. We just came out of Exodus. No, we're, we don't think it's going to enslave if God them. If God isn't giving them a better system, then God made a huge mistake. Right, right. Uh, bringing them out of, the, out of the Exodus. So what did they get? Like when Moses goes up there and comes back with right. like this strange appearance mm -hmm. what did what did everybody expect that they were getting well and i think this leads to a point that 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 we should talk about together oh class which is this issue of and this has happened throughout christian history and we really we really want to be on guard especially as in these in, in these times not not just the times that we're living in now but like even just modernity the last couple hundred years we've become increasingly sensitive to difference yes to different people to not to not making like, uh, you know, stereotypes out of people or not making judgments that are unfair. And so what has happened at times, not always, not always, but at times in the history of Christianity is that Christians have tried to make themselves look and feel better by making Jews and Judaism look bad, mm -hmm. um, which is a counterproductive Christian move. There's a really interesting um. book about this, which basically argues that that whole conversation about Christians versus Jews is actually weirdly like a transferred conversation about Protestants versus Catholics. Oh, totally. Right? So it's like right. Protestants attempting to differentiate themselves right. from Catholics by saying, mm -hmm. 
-hmm. Christians are so different from Jews, which sounds very weird. But if you ever, students, if any of you are married or when you get married, when you get in a weird relationship, when you get in a long-term relationship. A weird relationship. Sometimes a weird relationship. That's exactly what it is. Sometimes you can be arguing about one thing, but you're really arguing about something else. Okay. And so, okay. So students, in case you're just quick, quick, in case you're not uh, even, you're like Catholics, Protestants. Yeah. This is the need to know more. We're going deep. So we're going deep. So these are two different, these are two Christian groups. So what, what today we call Catholics groups that meet with a priest and they say the mass and perhaps you've been to a Catholic service before the um, Roman Catholic Church. The Roman Catholic Church was for the most part with with an exception of the Eastern Orthodox Church, which is a separate story that we'll tell we'll next semester. Yeah. Was basically just like the church for a while. Mm-hmm. And then there were there was a big fissure, a big break in the fifteen hundreds where this group was born called Protestants, which is probably um, and probably about, I don't know, 10 or 15% of you listening right now are Catholics or come from a Catholic background. According to George Fox statistics. According to George Fox statistics, yeah. probably more like um, 70 or 80% of you, if you came from a community of faith at all, came from what would be referred to broadly as a Protestant type church, like Baptists, Lutherans, Assemblies of God, Foursquare, mm-hmm. non-denominational churches. Those are all Protestant churches. So this point, this point Dr. Payne's making, which is a, a fascinating, subtle point from this book, is that this idea of like having this struggle between the two groups could have been, you know, it's also a kind of very deep seated struggle between Protestants and Catholics. So you kind of yeah. transfer it onto Judaism. Like Judaism is all about legalism and the law, just like Catholics are in, all about in, in the stereotype. The law. Yeah. So which is a stereotype is not fair to, to say that about Catholics. I don't think at all. No, 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 no. Close. So I think that the a lesson that we could get from this is that we need to be careful about how we read and mm-hmm. interpret things and we need to be sensitive to our own limited perspective and the biases that we may bring Mm -hmm. and just I think especially in this class and one of the reasons why I really enjoy this class is because I personally get a chance Mm -hmm. to read with new eyes Mm -hmm. and just say wow what is it like for the Israelites Mm -hmm. to receive commands from God 10 10 and more 10 plus 600 and <laughs> and more three or so. what do they receive and what is what is our responsibility to these laws now oh this is good okay so the quickest recap exodus the next lecture we talked about moses we talked about the burning bush we talked about moses getting the name of god we talked about pharaoh and the ethics like you get out of slavery but it's very emotional for god god says in exodus 4 23 i just wanted to read this again god's god's talking to moses he says i said to you He's talking about what he's going to say to Pharaoh. Let my son go that he may worship me. He's talking about Israel as his son, as his child. But you refuse to let him go. Now I will kill your firstborn son. So that argument I tried to make in the lecture about it being like a very, almost like romantic, parental, emotional kind of appeal from God. Like, I think that that's based, in, that's not just like my own idea. That's based in the text. Like, that's mm-hmm. how it's talked about. There's the Passover. There's the song of the sea. Israel gets out. Yay. But then they get to this mountain. There's fear on the mountain. They get the Ten Commandments and the other laws. There's this tabernacle, this, this idea that God is going to be like with them in physical form, which I think is like a typology of sorts. Or a kind of a story being told where Jesus comes down in physical form. God comes in physical form to be with Israel. That begins already in Exodus. So that's not, you don't have to wait till the New Testament to get an image of incarnation. So that's great. Um, And we ended that lecture talking about like, how do Christians deal with laws today? The law versus gospel question. and, And also this thing we were just talking about, about Judaism and the law. I think that that's a recap of basically... All the big, all the big points <laughs> through two lectures. Yeah, we, that's a lot. That, that's a lot. There, this is an action-packed week. You can maybe be tempted when you're reading um, 
books like Leviticus to get to to think it's a little bit of a snooze fest. Mm-hmm. At least that's how I used to interpret it. Yeah. But actually, there's a lot of action that's happening here, mm-hmm. especially when it comes to establishing like who the people of Israel are going to be mm-hmm. now that they are not a part of Egypt, which right. is a big change for them because they oh, went yeah. in basically like a big extended family, right, right? right? With with um the these brothers and they have all this family strife. They settle, this big extended family settles in this this place. They grow like crazy. They get oppressed. They are enslaved. Then all of a sudden they come out and they're now a nation. And how does a nation survive? Oh man. You need laws, right? You, you need laws. And I I think too, yeah, the idea like you totally need laws and I think I've heard maybe, I don't know, maybe I've engaged in this in my own, my own life, but I've also heard like what I think is kind of cheap Christian talk. Like, yeah, we're, we're just, we're free from the law. But I think what people mean by that is like, like, well, I guess you'd have to ask, like, what do you mean by that exactly? I think they usually mean needlessly oppressing people with standards that they can't possibly hope to like achieve or whatever. Now, there are people who would, of course, accuse Christians of the very kind of churches probably many of us go to of putting laws and rules on people that they cannot possibly achieve. Sure. About how they would use their bodies and what they would do and so on. And so this idea that like a group would have standards or rules and so on is not a foreign idea to most people. Right. In a practical sense. Right. And I think that Throughout the the story of Israel and th- certainly throughout the story of Christianity, there's always a tension there between a holy God mm-hmm. and an unholy people. Mm-hmm. And how, you know, what does it mean to be in relationship with that God? Mm-hmm. That's just, that's never going to go away. No, I think that that, I think that sort of thing, which is why, and I was, and, 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 and I, in the lecture on law, I, one of the ending points was like, yeah, there's, there's this sense like law and gospel, gospel word meaning good news, usually describing not just those four books in the New Testament that tell the story of Jesus, the four gospels, but also just like the proclamation, like Jesus has come, the world has changed and is changing and will change. Um, it's like those two concepts, law and gospel often get opposed to each other, but they're also kind of like, they're also mixed in a way that's really kind of uh, mysterious. Like there's some law in the gospel and there's some gospel already in the law. And it's like, it's never quite so clean and simple. No, there's, there's a productive tension yeah. there. It's yeah. supposed to produce something good. Yeah. Christians have to live with tensions and mysteries and kind of like holy, holy contradictions, contradictions that God has, has made holy paradoxes. We might call them, Yeah, you know, paradoxes of like God and human of law and gospel. And we kind of, we, Martin Luther, the, the, the first Protestant reformer, was really good at talking about those contradictions and how they were, in fact, productive for faith. Yes. So so there's that. Okay. okay. So we had talked about the possibility of exploring one of these very striking passages, these law passages. We got to explore. Yeah. Um, what, do you, what do you think would be a good text that we could read and talk about that would get us into like just the... I don't know, some of the serious ideas. The serious ideas and I think the strangeness. Mm-hmm. Um, and because there is, I think it's important to note, I mean, we've been, we've tried to be really careful to say, listen, we need to not have a, a we need a three-dimensional view of the mm-hmm. law. Mm-hmm. Um, but there is one important note, which is there's a lot of historical distance between ourselves and this community. That's so there's true. just a lot of things that just seem very strange Oh, to us. it's going to seem strange. Yeah. So I think Leviticus, 
Leviticus 16 might be a very, Ooh, really good place to start with that. The Day of Atonement the and, day and of the so called the so called scapegoat ritual. Oh, let's It's let's a long passage, there. but I think we should read it. I think just reading it out loud, I mean even students if you read it as part of the reading, I mean just to hear it again and then for us to talk about some of it. Yes, is, let's do that. It's going to be a good time. Do you want to start? Sure. Verse by verse. Verse by alternating ver- alternating okay. this is Leviticus 16 Let's that's go. always exciting when there's like a half a sentence like a verse I know it's like is the person going to pick it up and stride <laughs> ramp up ramp or, down. down are you going to inflect it oh okay. the drama is real people new revised standard version mm-hmm. Exodus chapter 16 here we go mm-hmm. the Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron when they drew near before the Lord and died the Lord said to Moses tell your brother Aaron not to come just at any time into the sanctuary inside the curtain before the mercy seat that is upon the ark or he will die for I appear in the cloud upon the mercy seat. Thus shall Aaron come into the holy place with a young bull for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He shall put on the holy linen tunic and shall have the linen undergarments next to his body. Fasten the linen sash and wear the linen turban. These are the holy vestments. He shall bathe his body in water and then put them on. He shall take from the congregation of the people of Israel two male goats for a sin offering and one ram for a burnt offering. Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. He shall take the two goats and set them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Aaron shall cast lots on the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for Azazel. Aaron shall present the goat on which the lot fell for the Lord and offer it as a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell for Azazel shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement over it, that it may be sent away into the wilderness to Azazel. Aaron shall present the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. He shall slaughter the bull as a sin offering for himself. He shall take a censer full of coals of fire from the altar before the Lord and two handfuls of crushed sweet incense and he shall bring it inside the curtain and put the incense on the fire before the Lord that the cloud of the incense may cover the mercy seat that is upon the covenant or he will die. He shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the front of the mercy seat. And before the mercy seat, he shall sprinkle the blood with his finger seven times. He shall slaughter the goat of the sin offering that is for the people and bring its blood inside the curtain and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkling it upon the mercy seat and before the mercy seat. Thus he shall make atonement for the sanctuary because of the uncleanness of the people of Israel and because of their transgressions, all of their sins. And so he shall do for the tent of meeting, which remains with them in the midst of their uncleanness. No one shall be in the tent of meeting from the time he enters to make atonement in the sanctuary until he comes out and has made atonement for himself and for his house and for all the assembly of Israel. Then he shall go out to the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement on its behalf and shall take some of the blood of the bull and of the blood of the goat and put it on each of the horns of the altar. He shall sprinkle some of the blood on it with his finger seven times and cleanse it and hallow it from the uncleanliness of the people of Israel. When he has finished atoning for the holy place and the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall present the live goat. Then Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and their transgressions, all of their sins, putting them on the head of the goat and sending it away into the wilderness by means of someone designated for the task. The goat shall bear on itself all their iniquities to a barren region, and the goat shall be set free in the wilderness. Then Aaron shall enter the tent of meeting 
and shake off the linen vestments that he put on when he went into the holy place and shall leave them there. He shall bathe his body in water in a holy place and put on his vestments. Then he shall come out and offer his burnt offering and the burnt offering of the people, making atonement for himself and for the people. The fat of the sin offering he shall turn into smoke on the altar. The one who sets the goat free for Azazel shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water, and afterward he may come into the camp. The bull of the sin offering and the goat of the sin offering, whose blood was brought in to make atonement in the holy place, shall be taken outside the camp. Their skin and their flesh and their dung shall be consumed in fire. The one who burns them shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water, and afterward may come into the camp. This shall be a statute to you forever. In the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall deny yourselves and shall do no work, neither the citizen nor the alien who resides among you. For on this day atonement shall be made for you to cleanse you. From all your sins you shall be clean before the Lord. It is a Sabbath of complete rest to you. And you shall deny yourselves. It is a statute forever. The priest who is anointed and consecrated as priest in his father's place shall make atonement, wearing the linen vestments, the holy vestments. He shall make atonement for the sanctuary, and he shall make atonement for the tent of meeting and for the altar, and he shall make atonement for the priests and for all the people of the assembly. This shall be an everlasting statute for you to make atonement for the people of Israel once in the year for all their sins. And Moses did as the Lord had commanded him. Wow. That was a barn burner. You know, students, I'm not sure if you've read this before, but if you've never read it before, and if you're listening to this for the first time, I hope that you can hear, in addition to some of the, just the very strange things, you know, like sprinkling blood on fingers and stuff. I hope you can hear a lot of common like symbolic language that we use in everyday life. Oh like yeah, the idea of scapegoating. Oh yeah, you know? the, yeah, scapegoat. That idea comes. That word comes from this passage. Yeah, like this. This. Um, well, I just wonder what the goat is thinking that gets that goes out into the. Wilderness. I know. So what? Like what? It, like let's just. Talk, there's so yes. much here. Like what about just this? What about that aspect of the ritual? What did you think about that? That aspect where it's like the priest is going to confess the sins of the people, almost like he's putting them on his hands, and then almost like he's putting it on the head of the goat almost like this kind of like i don't know like an idea like if someone's sick and they just like touch you you feel like you've been like infected on your arm or mm-hmm. something like this idea mm-hmm. like there's a like like sin in this way of thinking is almost like a physical thing that you transfer onto an animal and then kick its butt away from the camp like how oh wow like what's the logic of that like how does that work i was having a really really strange experience listening to this and i'll tell you this um I knew someone who worked in a slaughterhouse at one point in time, and they were talking about how um, it it was actually really like grim and gory Mm -hmm. work, Um, but basically it was a slaughterhouse for cows, and they were talking about how animals know when death is close to them. Really? Yeah, and they freak out. And I was actually thinking about the goat. This is the first time I've ever ever thought this. You know, when we were, when I was just listening to us read it, I was like, animals, I mean, they're they are sensitive to certain things. And I was mm-hmm. thinking about what the goat felt like having like sin and death put on the goat. And then the goat, it was the first time I'd ever thought about the perspective of the goat, basically oh, yeah. like knowing that death is around. Right. And then all of a sudden like fleeing this group of people. Yeah. I mean, I think even if you saw it in, it seems very like mysterious and like the is. sin is like really real. Otherwise, if it's not, I guess the question that I would have if I were a reader of this, which I, I am a reader of this, yes. it's a real question is like, am I supposed to view this as 
something that's, for lack of a better term, purely symbolic. Like as though, okay, just think of it as though, you know, kind of like maybe some of us, if we grew up in a Christian camp culture, maybe you went to a Christian camp and mm-hmm. when you were in middle school or when it really started to get dramatic, you know, in right, middle school. Right, right. My daughter's going into sixth grade, so I'm thinking about like middle school drama. Oh, like, so sweet. And just like that's when the drama begins. And like you right. that, that's when you go to camp and the camp counselors can be like, I'm gonna give everyone a sheet of paper, no one's gonna be looking. And I know that there's something probably all of you are ashamed of. And I just want you to write that. No one's gonna look, no one's yeah. gonna take that sheet of paper from you. I just want you to write down a word, a symbol, We're gonna whatever. Burn it in the camp. And you're gonna burn it in a fire, yeah, right? Yeah. And so it's not like you're actually like erasing your past or whatever, but there's a psychological effect. Like and and then they can say, like, just like that's being burned, so God is taking away. Are we supposed to read this as like that? Or is there sin actually really being like what is your sense from the passage about what is happening? Is it is it like a real transaction or is it a symbolic thing to help people process their emotions? Well, you know, all of us are shaped by our own experiences, but I'm going to go with, I think that there's something material mm. supposed to like mm-hmm. present in this passage. Something like, real it's is happening. It's not yeah. just supposed to be symbolic. Yeah. I, th- yeah. I think that... I think that's the only way this passage makes sense mm-hmm. in terms of like how seriously people are supposed to take it mm-hmm. and how how material the preparations are, mm-hmm. right? Like you're supposed to change your clothes. You're supposed to bathe. You're supposed to do all this stuff. A lot stuff. of water, of course. Baptism, a lot of water. You think baptism imagery yeah. already begins in ancient, ancient Israel, ancient Judaism, you could say, with this kind of bathing, water, priestly stuff. I've got like a, a really theoretical argument to run by you to see what you think Mm -hmm. i think the only reason why we would think that it's psychological is because of the very modern invention of psychology oh totally right like this idea that like in psychology is created out of a an urban Mm -hmm. educated society where Mm -hmm. people are a little bit removed from like an agricultural setting Mm -hmm. and so i think why wouldn't we think there's something material there i i grew up in a tradition that's really deeply indebted to revivalism where they would have things called camp meetings where Uh people would like in rural areas get together and they'd sing tons of songs about blood like the blood of jesus washed in the blood the blood will never lose its power and i think the reason why they felt an affinity with it in part is because they're a little bit more connected to this world of like raising animals and ranching and farming and what do you think oh no i I think yeah i think your analysis about the way we psychologize things is totally true and I think, yeah, there's been a kind of a, there's a sort of a pop psychology, which is like, there's nothing that's really real. It's just like our impressions of how we feel about, you know, or we hear this even in our language, like it's become very common. I know I probably talk like this all the time to say like, yeah, I just really feel like, to use the phrase, I feel, I feel like, I feel like. Oh, right, right. Which is, which is kind of like a, it's a contemporary way of saying like, don't judge me. You can't tell me how to feel. If I feel like, it's like encoding it in our language. Like if I feel this way. That's just reality, right. you know, and so everything I think has taken on that kind of that kind of meaning of of feelings and psychology and so on. Well, and from a Christian perspective, and it, students, if you if this is all this language is new to you, then we welcome you. And I I love the questions that people have who've never heard mm-hmm. or considered about the or considered any of this stuff. Right. For those of you who are raised in the church, this language of atonement, atoning, is going to probably sound really familiar, right. and. Jesus is going to be seen in the scriptures and by church uh, theologians as the ultimate atonement. So if we say that atoning things beforehand were only symbolic, why would we think that, you know, Jesus is real? So if we think that he's like the real atonement, Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm inclined to think there's something 
that that the people of Israel are thinking mm-hmm. there's something happening here. Well, and this word atonement here is such a serious word. Like, yeah, I, you tell know, us about that. Well, the the word here, I could I could pull up some some uh, some Hebrew Bible here just Do for it. for fun Do on the uh, on the screen. Um, but um, y- yeah, but it's a word like like if you were just reading this for the first time and you didn't even know what the English word atonement meant, what would you think that word meant based on this passage? Like just the way they're talking about it. Did you have a sense? Like, oh, if reading that's that? great. Yeah. Um, I mean, I I guess I would think of it as like taking, uh, putting something on mm. on somebody else. Okay, I'm just trying to think. Like, this is what the Israelites are supposed to be doing. Right. It is an atonement. So yeah, they're physically putting something that belongs to them on somebody else. Right. On something right. else. Yeah. It, it, the the Hebrew verb here for this kafar, you might say, or kipper in the particular inflection, kipper. Yeah. Means to cover over. Or, or something mm. like that. So this idea of covering something. I think the English word atonement is a word from like the medieval period or the early modern period w- w- made up of words like uh, literally at, like it looks on the page at one mint, mm. like how one becomes re- somehow reconciled to God. Which makes sense because it's like a Christianized right. conversation. Right. So yeah, I, I am inclined to think more about the older Mm-hmm. version of that this idea that well i'm like this idea that this goat and what what the heck is i mean we won't be able to explain here in the time that we have no, remaining. Is, we never y- have enough time you know like azazel like what the heck is that there's one goat for the lord and one for azazel and they're sending out the goat to azazel and it's capitalized in this translation almost as though it's some kind of like fearsome de- demonic yeah presence or a place right exactly like but something that's in the wilderness something that's away from god away from the tabernacle I think that's really interesting. And this is going to come up again and again, which is like, where is God Mm -hmm. and what is the role of the wilderness Mm. in like the story of Israel? Because they're sent out there, but Mm. then like they're supposed to send their sin there. I don't know. Do you have any thoughts on that? Oh, yeah. And and not to mention the fact that after they leave this mountain, they are going to go wandering in the wilderness. For a really long time. So those of us who have maybe liked to go backpacking or, or hang out in wilderness places, or maybe even who grew up in wilderness places, mountainous places, arid places, high desert places, like there's a kind of a spirituality associated with the wilderness. That's really been important in Christian spirituality as well. And you have right. a lot of Christians, especially in the early so-called monastic period, fleeing to deserts and kind of like building a way of life out in a fierce landscape like that. And so um, if you, if, if you love fierce landscapes or you've been to them, you, you, you probably just kind of get in your gut mm-hmm. the kind of sense that like there's something kind of wild and untamed about a place like that. And even if you're like me who was raised in a rural setting who doesn't like the wilderness particularly. I think there's something here for you too, because you can see that it's a mysterious, fearsome kind of place. Right. Right. So you get here the seed though, of an idea that will become important later as we talk about atonement and so on with Jesus, namely the idea that someone could suffer on behalf of someone else, that this goat, presumably this goat hasn't committed like moral sins is having sin put on it. And it's being sent away outside the camp to suffer in a very particular way. And that they're ordered to do this, right? Like this is a statute. This is a law. Wow. What a passage. I wish we could spend more time. Uh, We have to wrap it up. It's the law. 